Morning, one and all those of you who join us out of town and those of you who are in town, how about the great Stan Mitchell last Sunday? Anybody? Anybody miss it? Listen. Yeah, jazz hands. You've got to go back and catch it if you missed it. It's every so often, and this has been true over the years, every so often something will be dropped in our path that you're like, okay, there's no forward without going through that. And so that Stan consistently does that for us. So that's why we invite him. These have been tricky years to be alive, I'll say that, to acknowledge your story, but these are also tricky years to be a pastor or a leader of a faith community. They're really strange times when everything is taken away and you don't know if, if anything's coming back with the next tide, right? This has been a two-year tide out. We've been looking at just empty things and not knowing what, do we, what, you know, what are we going to build on next, and so it's been a tricky time. And all throughout that process, Stan has been a mentor to us. He's been with us now for years on our shoulder, in our ear, and you will be glad to know that we've asked him to speak to us once a quarter to get on his, uh, his four times a year rotation, and he's agreed to do that graciously. So look for uh, a heavy dose of Stan in the diet. Uh, as it turns out, our mental health is about as good as Stan is available, and he's very available, and so we're well. So just, just want, thought you might need to know that. Again, go back and catch it, podcast or video. We didn't do an early morning to, to lens. It was just the Sunday grab, so you're going to want to catch that if you missed it. So we had hours of conversation, Stan and I, and that's what we scheduled. We basically post up at Trey's house with a dog that's now senile, and so we wear closed-toed shoes so we don't get bit on the foot by Budge while we have free-ranging conversations. And in one of those conversations, the subject of nostalgia came up. And Stan mentioned something that he had read or heard. He says, what we used to mean when we said we were feeling nostalgic was that we were thinking about things like back in middle school or 10 or 20 years ago. Can anybody guess what we mean now when we say we're feeling nostalgic. That's about 12 months to 24 months ago. Am I right? You know what that means. Do you remember when this was nothing but a flu and we'd be back by Easter? <laughs> Do you remember that? That was Easter 2020. That's two, two years ago now. That public figure went away before the virus that he politicized did. And life is just funny sometimes that way, isn't it? It's just funny how that works. So here we are, almost a million dead in America alone, I don't hear that mentioned enough in public spaces. We mourn them all. Perhaps, friends, we didn't slow up enough to mourn that. Every family member, every person who died as a result of COVID complications is to be mourned. You see, grief unites us. Politics doesn't. We ought to be a little smarter before we get pulled by the nose into fights and skirmishes in the public arena. Grief brings us together. Politics divide. This, as it turns out, no surprise to you, was no flu. COVID has permanently altered what it means to be a human being in the world today. And yet, we remain, don't we? Here we are. So much that's true about us still remains. Just to name a few things, we still need each other. We still need to see each other face to face. Full face to full face. We still need to be in proximity to one another. We evolved in community, and it seems to me that we've all but lost the ability to thrive without it. You could make a case. I know the International Space Station. I get it. Antarctica. But listen, we need each other. We are survivors. We are fighters. We are scientists and researchers. We solve problems, especially when we have to. And another one of the forgotten stories of this epidemic, pandemic for me is the incredible minds that circled up and delivered to humanity a working vaccine. If the researchers and scientists that developed effective therapies for COVID and brought them to market in record time don't get nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize of Medicine, then something smells fishy in Stockholm. See, they laughed at 11. 
There's no sense of humor at 9.30. They were just like, Stockholm, what are you talking about? (laughs) What an absolutely gargantuan lift was made by minds all around the globe to bring us to the position that we are in today where with some reservation and some safety we're able to do this again. All that to say, friends, welcome back to those little gray chairs that we've only kept warm by selling tickets to the O4 Center Jenny, you were here for the Tab Benoit show. Was that a ruckus event or what? We've been slamming this place full to see bands, and so I think it's time for us to time a gentle, soft re-entry into the life of our community. You guys, I can't tell you all the details ahead, but great things are coming for us. We are by no means on a taper down. We're We're gonna lift off here soon. And that doesn't mean that we're out of the woods of this disease. I'm not saying that we will be safe and we will be wise, but good things are coming. Now is when you wanna be part of what's going on here, just know that. All that to say, welcome back, and welcome to Lent 2022, and there should be no applause for that. Y'all know what Lent's all about. The theme I've chosen for this year's Lenten journey is addition by way of subtraction. Everything's buried in that title. You'll be hearing from Trey, we love Trey. You'll be hearing from Laura Merrill, my boss, the district superintendent of the, UM, of the United Methodist Church. Trey and, and Laura always bring great things. You'll also be hearing, hopefully, from Sam as she reemerges from maternity leave. Uh, in the next few weeks, or actually she'll probably join us for Palm Sunday in April. But our text today is the classic text for the first Sunday in Lent. It comes to us from the book of Luke, chapter 4, and let me just read it. You would know it as the temptation of Jesus. It reads this way. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, that's a river, and was led by the, I'd say that because those are also tennis shoes in my, (laughs) Molly and I both probably have daughters who love Jordans. That's just a little joke we have, so. Full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan, was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during these days, and when they were over, the very obvious, he was famished. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. I wonder sometimes why Jesus followed, but we go on. Verse 6, and the devil said to him, to you I will give their glory and all this authority, for it has been given over to me, and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will be all yours. It will all be yours. Verse 8, Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil took him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, and here we have the devil quoting scripture now, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their, head, on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. Now, according to Luke, that opportune time wouldn't come until Judas portrays Jesus in the garden the night before all the events of Holy Week. Isn't it interesting I worried about this as a child. Isn't it interesting to hear the devil quoting scripture to Jesus? That bothered me when I was in elementary school. I'll just give you this little free grab as we, as we speed past. Not everyone who quotes scripture is full of the right spirit. Just, just hang on to that. Your heart maybe needs to hear that today. Some people are smiling because you have the same trauma in the past that I do. But here we have Jesus alone in the wilderness for 40 days. And to Jews, that number was very, very significant. That's how many years the ancient Hebrews wandered around in circles in the desert before they took ownership, crossed the river, and took ownership of the promised land. And that's probably why 
uh, Lent consists of 40 days as well. Well, actually, not exactly 40 days. It's 40 days plus the Sundays that fall between Ash Wednesday and Easter morning. In case you were doing the math and you're like, wait, this doesn't look like 40 days. Wait a minute. I have still never explained that to my children. It's kind of like a time change. It just doesn't make sense. So it's roughly 40 days. It's supposed to remind us of previous seasons of testing and trials. That's the point. And if the number 40 doesn't do it for us to jog our memories, intentionally, intentionally cultivating hunger and longing and lack should do the trick. It should take us back to seasons of longing in our past. I'm pretty sure I've always dreaded Lent. I grew up in a very Catholic world. I knew all the signs. I knew it on the public bus when I would see people with the ashes on the forehead. I'm pretty sure I always dreaded it. Because in one way or another, it's about fasting, isn't it? Not my favorite. Anyone in the room just loves to fast? I'm a pretty crummy person when I'm fasting. I'm irritable. I'm short-tempered. You know the deal. I spend hours hallucinating about crinkly, salty snacks and little packages. You can have all the desserts in Austin. I'm not tempted by that, but a bag of ruffles is the devil with a red dress. I'm telling you, there's something about that stuff. It's what I... It's what I, you know, you're supposed to fast to focus, and all I can focus on is a bag of ruffles. Well, such is not the case when I fast from Facebook, which some of us do. It's the most popular Christian fast right now going. Then I become a better human. Then I just have my opinions. I don't need to know you agree with me for me to agree with me. I can just have my opinions. Anyway, every year I wince when I look at the calendar, and I realize it's getting warmer, and Lent is right around the corner. I'm not a huge fan of fasting, and I'm not a huge fan of fish. <laughs> well, that's not, that's not entirely true. I love the expensive kind, mostly. You know, the sushi-grade fish, especially any of the ceviches on ATX Cocina's menu. If y'all need a place to go, just trust me. Go to ATX Cocina on second and order both of the ceviche options. You will come back and you will thank me. Run, don't walk. I love the sushi-grade stuff they serve at ATX Cocina. I love it at Neighborhood Sushi. I love it at Uchi Ko. I love it at Uchi. I can't afford it during Lent. That's not the fish that we're talking about. I think I've always assumed, this is the point, that Lent was packaged with guilt. Which, as we know, listening to Stan last week, often comes with early stages of faith. You see, that early naivete, that first conversion as adolescence in faith, often comes with things like guilt and duty. But it's supposed to fall away as we grow. It's supposed to take the back seat as we develop as, as believers. You see, nothing good ever comes of guilt except fatigue and frustration and the fact that it accelerates our longing for faith deconstruction, which in turn gives way to that second grace of faith reconstruction if we can manage to pull up the weeds that guilt drops deep in the soil of our hearts. But Lent isn't about guilt, and neither is fasting. Friends, we don't fast to please God. Heaven is as happy with us when we feast as when we fast. It's not about making God smile. It's about making room for the good stuff in our hearts. Now, to be clear, the good stuff is already there on the inside. I no longer believe that true goodness or true love or true transcendent, pristine divinity is outside any of us. We call it the image of God. It's the truest thing about us. It's our truest nature. Therefore, fasting, as I understand it, doesn't so much create something where nothing was. It doesn't make something, something true that otherwise wasn't. No, no, friends. Fasting is a way to quiet down the noise, to more fully reveal what's already real, what's already true. And you can take this to the bank if you're looking for something to grab today. The spiritual disciplines have nothing to do with guilt or shame or torture or pain. The spiritual disciplines are about 
cleansing away what distracts, what deflects, what deters, and what diminishes. And that's every word I could think of that started with D. And I do that for the private joy of Trace, my friend, who just loves alliteration. Lent, the church season, when the spiritual discipline of fasting sits in pole position, doesn't create anything new on its own, unless, of course, we're talking about capacity. It can create a whole lot of new capacity if we allow it to. And looking at it that way makes all the difference in the world. True religion, friends, is about unloading, unloading, unburdening, unencumbering our truest selves. You hear me say it all the time. It can't be reduced to adding duties or demands to avoid disappointing the divine. No, true religion is about removing things that seem virtuous but only make us busy. It's about removing things we think we depend on but only enslave our affections. Surely you remember Jesus' statement, true religion is looking after the widow and the orphan. It's about emptying, isn't it? It's about freeing our affections. It's about becoming more deeply what we've already always been. And now perhaps you're tracking with me. You can see where the theme comes from, addition by way of subtraction. Here's what I see more clearly now than I ever have in my life. The Spirit of God wants to add to us by first taking away the things that cloud our vision and burden our hearts which is where God's trusty old tool, the wilderness, comes in handy, doesn't it? If only there was some other way, friends, some microwave option, you know, a shortcut or an end run or a way to sneak to the head of the line unnoticed, if only, if only. You know, if you asked me, I think this is what the devil is offering Jesus here in the wilderness, shortcuts. Let me see if I can explain Jesus, in time, will turn stones into bread, or pretty close. He fed an entire multitude of hungry people gathered on a hillside to hear him speak with only a few pieces of bread and a couple of pieces of fish to work with. He would not only satisfy his own hunger in time, his flesh would feed anyone and everyone who longed for bread that would last. Jesus knew how to make bread. Jesus was, in fact, bread. And the glory and the authority of all the kingdoms of the world, observable from the point that the devil took him, that second temptation... According to Matthew 28, is something Jesus was given by the Father, and in turn, something Jesus gives to us, his followers. Jesus didn't require anyone to give him authority. He was the very embodiment of eternal authority, which we know simply as presence or love. But then again, so are you, according to Jesus, the embodiment of the divine when you walk in love. And the whole stunt of throwing himself off the pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem, that third temptation, What exactly was the devil offering Jesus there? Could it have been a public display of God's protection over his physical body? I don't think so. Perhaps an opportunity to gather and wow a crowd? That feels more likely to me. But you see, Jesus in time would certainly wow large crowds, but he would do it by setting people free of inner narratives that had become so developed that the scripture calls them demons. Jesus would wow crowds by feeding them and opening eyes, by straightening backs and cleansing skin diseases and welcoming hookers and forgiving cheats and scallywags. He didn't need any help whatsoever to gather a crowd. In fact, at one point, a crowd assembled around his teaching that wanted to crown him king. John recalls this happening in, in, the, in the sixth chapter of his gospel. Now, surely, think about these folks. Surely these folks knew that it would result in a bloody revolution if they put a crown on Jesus' head. You see, they already had a king. In fact, they had two, if you count Herod. 
To crown Jesus would condemn them to public death. They knew the stakes, and yet they were still willing to crown him. They weren't dumb people. They were moved by his teachings and the miracles that accompanied them. The crowd's adoration of Jesus grew to such a fevered pitch at one point that he literally had to sneak away before they could arrange a clandestine coronation. Jesus knew how to make bread. He didn't need anyone to gift him authority or glory. And he had a flair for the spectacular. He knew how to draw a crowd. What then was the devil offering Jesus in these three temptations? So much has been said and written about this little encounter in the wild. Well, you want to know what I would summarize these three temptations as? Simply this, shortcuts. That's what the devil offers Jesus, shortcuts. The same end game with a different time frame. Now pause and stay with me here for a second. I have my finger on what most of us pray for, what most of us hope for. Hear me, what we long for, what we would kill ourselves to find the easiest way through a hard thing. The shortest route to the silver lining, the quickest way to get past all the hard stuff to the good stuff, to the fun stuff, to the glory. You know the PhD in wilderness survival. That's what we pray for. That's what we seek. The shortcut. Of course we do. How could we not? Everyone loves a good shortcut. And besides, that's how your brain is actually made. Your brain finds it. That's what it does. But what is the cost of cutting to the chase? What is the cost of jetting past the test? What is the cost of building a life that features no hunger, no thirst, no longing, no emptiness, no time alone, no struggle? What is the cost of such a life? I mean, isn't that the American dream after all? Less hard stuff, more ease and pleasure and happy times, more reward, less work. That's the dream we raise our babies on, isn't it? But the world of Jesus is one where addition comes only by way of subtraction. You see, in love's world, things take actual room on the inside to thrive, to add something meaningful to already full inner landscapes. Something in us will need to yield the space it currently occupies for something else to flourish. This concept, my good friend, I think summarizes everything Jesus ever taught us. That's the tweet. That's the bottom line. He didn't come into the world to condemn it or to curse it or to burn it to the ground for falling short or for disappointing God. No, friends, Jesus came to show it, to show us how to have a fuller life right now. But such a life will only be possible if we relinquish lesser ideas about who we are, about what God thinks, about what we're capable of. Addition always comes by way of subtraction in the economy of love. And that, I'm sure you can guess, takes time. Oh, but heaven, dear ones, never seems to be in much of a hurry, does it? The good stuff always comes eventually. Therefore, the wilderness isn't to be cursed or rejected or avoided. It's the way to what we actually want, it, to what we actually need. It can't be rushed. The wilderness must not. It cannot be rushed. And that's the worst and the best news that I can give you. That's the message of Lent which means we have a big problem. Somewhere along the line, we have learned to interpret the wilderness as the place of God's abandon, the, as the place of God's punishment, you see. It's the place that we think that, that, that we've somehow be become the target of God's wrath. Of course we thought that. How could we not? But we must think slowly and deeply now, friends. The gospel is beautifully encapsulated in the movements and the sequencing of today's text. Don't forget 
The same spirit of the divine that was at the waters of the Jordan River where Jesus was baptized by his cousin John was the very same spirit that led and sustained him for 40 days in the wild place. God's pleasure and pride was in who Jesus was, not in what Jesus did. Heaven had already declared publicly their delight in Jesus before he accomplished anything worth writing down, which tells us what we most need to know about God today and about ourselves, if only, if only we could accept that as truth. Anyway, immediately following his baptism, the spirit of the same God that approved of Jesus at the river's edge led him, compelled him, lured him into the windswept places alone. Now pause again. Why would a shortcut be so enticing to Jesus? I'm guessing Jesus had an idea of what lay ahead for him, as any revolutionary would. He had prepared 30 years for what was about to happen after all, which tells me, if nothing else, that there was great intention probably put into everything he was doing now. Think about it. Every revolutionary, be they military, ideological, or religious, calculates and plans and schemes and coordinates their movements, especially at the beginning. The work before Jesus was anything but glorious, at, at least at these initial things in the beginning. It was menial work. It smelled like fish and soil and disease. It was going to be hard. There would be suffering and loneliness. There would be misunderstandings and betrayals and false accusations. This was going to be a long road, which is why these shortcuts offered by the devil, according to our text, must have been so tempting. If this wasn't tempting to Jesus, I doubt his friends would have written it down which brings up an interesting point. How do we get this story anyway? If only Jesus and the devil and the Spirit of God were there, how did Luke know who said what, when, and how? Well, I'm guessing Jesus probably talked about it to his friends because it mattered that they know exactly what to do when they found themselves in, temp in, in times of trials and testing. Of course Jesus was tempted by these shortcuts. Of course he was. Remember in the garden, the night before his crucifixion, he basically begs God to pass the cup of suffering from him. Jesus, like many of us, like all of us, had plenty of initial resistance to the ways of heaven, as it turns out. Jesus had warring parts of him, not yet willing to trust his pristine self, his eternal self, capital S. He had parts still burdened with the need to feel important and significant in a world crying out for liberation. I think it's to these parts of himself that Jesus quotes the Old Testament text three times to convince himself to back away from pulling the lever that might make some bread for God's sakes to feed his hunger. I used to look at these temptations as something that might compel the average person like you or I. I left Jesus out of that club, but increasingly over time, I must admit, friends, that I see Jesus as one of us. He warred with himself as we do. He was tempted just like we are, at least the author of the book of Hebrews is to be believed. Who doesn't want a shortcut past the hard to get to the good stuff? Abundant food, authority and glory, large adoring crowds, Jesus would have all that in time, but not yet. There was a process, you see, there was a sequence, a waiting period where things would need to be subtracted before other things could be added. Friends, we aren't being tested because we are flawed and neither was Jesus. There is just no other way to create in us enough capacity to bear the almost unbearable burden of heaven's love if something isn't first subtracted. Only the wisest of mystics and sages deep in their seventh and eighth decades manage to live empty. The rest of us try to fill our lives to the brim. We work so hard to always be full, which is why addition must precede subtraction, you see. And so we must decide now, 
What needs to give up space so that the truer parts of us might emerge, take root, and bear fruit? Well, I know what the wild spirit of the wilderness is telling me to give up now. My guess is so do you. The death of unnecessary things, even if we thought they were essential, always makes way for something more real and life-sustaining, but we must allow it to happen. And of course, there is no rush, friends. We have 40 days to figure this out. But if you're already hearing the wind howl in your life, then you know what things might need to die for, for you to be truly free. Then don't resist. Let it happen. Heaven only knows what divine things might take root where lesser things were. Join me on your feet as we pray. Kitty.